What began as a young woman's dream come true ended in a nightmare that would become internationally known in headlines, on the cover of tabloids, and broadcast in news shows. But the true story behind the punchline was even more horrifying than the media ever explained. This week's episode is Lorena Bobbitt, Part 1. In the night, your heart fills with dread. Probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. Uh, a way to spend some time watching this documentary dude this this was a hard one this is one of it made me it was reminiscent of the oj documentary yeah just the yes. callousness with which everyone spoke of abuse and sexual assault also can we just say up top um, early '90s daytime talk show hosts were the scum of the earth. <laughs> Fucking trash. I Geraldo, remember. Geraldo I remember them. in particular. Oh, Geraldo, scum of the earth. Scum of Phil the fucking Donahue, earth. Not great. Jenny Jones, not great. None of them were great. No, uh-uh. Oprah, great. Oh, for sure. Forever. But everyone else, like, could not have been just salacious. Uh, teeing everybody up encouraging arguments and fights and it was all just so sexist and homophobic completely and And Geraldo's was so bad and I texted you because it popped into my head as I was watching the documentary of course there's like archival footage of him and it reminded me that I read an article summarizing his 1991 memoir that he published it is some of the most disgusting prose I've read American Psycho in seventh grade, and reading this as an adult, I was more horrified. What does he talk I, about? He talks about the women that he hit on and Ugh. how he was like trying to sleep with everyone at work and that they like to fuck in the boiler room. And I'm, one of the lines is like, a hard dick knows no reason. It's just gross. What? It's, Geraldo? The, My God. First of all, he looks gross with that mustache. And yeah. then second of all, you read it and it feels like the pages of the book would be oily Ugh. and greasy and slimy and just disgusting because it's just so sexist and gross. He since has obviously when it came out, you know, he didn't he was perfectly fine with it in the 90s. Well, in 2017, 2018, a journalist found it and said, I think the title of the article is I read Geraldo's disgusting memoir, so you don't have to. And of course, <laughs> Geraldo came out and said, I regret deeply what I wrote and I didn't mean that and blah, blah. It's like, it's too late, man. Yeah, <laughs> know. it's out there, buddy. Also, who wants to fuck in a boiler room? It's, it's so, so hot. Dirty. It's dank. And, yeah, just that's like the just a lot of machinery and loud noises i imagine somebody down like taking to empty their slop bucket like it's not private <laughs> oh and then you get slop thrown on you <laughs> in more ways than one geraldo <laughs> slops all over you <laughs> oh yeah so disgusting so, the, so any, everyone's coverage of this also i feel like people you know some people will say nowadays oh saturday night live's not funny anymore it was funnier in the 90s it was not no like, first of all kate mckinnon was not on there true i'm I watched Bombshell recently. Is I am it good? in love in love with Kate McKinnon. Well, 
she she, she could be in love with you too i love her she's great and oh my gosh but these sketches that were made about lorena bobbitt were not even I, i'm like i'm offended as a woman on one level but i'm more offended as a comedian because these they're, are not funny uh, they're tasteless and just real low-hanging fruit and yeah. even, and there were so many so many famous comics robin williams Whoopi goldberg did stand-up routines yes. where jokes about her were in there and those are people that are arguably extremely well respected and i don't know man the 90s were a different time Whoopi's though she did it, hers was more empowered a lot of it in the documentary is kind of taken out of context and then when they mm-hmm. show you more clips it's like okay she was actually very pro woman in this whole situation but robin williams is just doing this really offensive accent offensive accent and just yeah. it's all just so low hanging fruit and the main i mean i my blood was boiling watching this documentary because i just kept thinking what if he had cut her clit off yes who's gonna be laughing about joking that? who's gonna be making jokes it it and as she says time and time again and still says 25 years later no one cared why i did it they mm-hmm. were all just concerned with oh my god she did the unthinkable this is his manhood this is everything to men how could she dare instead of thinking what would drive someone to those extremes first absolutely it's funny you say that and i think it's in the last episode it's one of the women that works at the bunny ranch says they cut off 10,000 clits a day in some foreign mm-hmm. countries mm-hmm. and it never makes the news. One day gets cut off and it's all anybody talked about yeah. for two years. Yeah. And a lot of the journalists that are interviewed in the documentary that are or a lot of the activists said, oh, journalists at the time would write these stories and the editors were male and they were like, mm, we don't really like that angle. Mm-hmm. We're not really interested. But it was interesting to me just throughout the documentary looking at it now with the, you know, obviously the more I would hope we're all more evolved now lens. It wasn't just sexist as fuck what happened to her. It was incredibly racist. There was so oh, many yeah. racial, anti-immigrant, xenophobic kind of overtones that you don't realize this poor woman was, she was completely victimized since day one of knowing this guy. Mm-hmm. And he, frankly, is a fucking racist. I mean, oh, you, yeah. He's complete you trash. Him, when you watch him talk, you have no doubt. The the type of language he used, it's like dog whistle coded. Like he's obviously smart enough not to come straight out and say it, but then there's like messages that he sent and quotes of his from way back and he from day one has had some white supremacist views. Very much so. He would belittle her for, for her accent, make fun of the way she spoke. Just, I mean, threaten to deport her and use her immigration status to to control her. It was absolutely disgusting. He's a huge sack of shit. Yeah, he sucks. And nothing about him in the documentary or anything I've read is redeeming at all. His family's complete trash, too. They're such monsters. Oh, total monsters. His brothers. Shitheads. Awful. They're they're, They're all awful. The documentary we're talking about is aptly uh titled Lorena it's on Amazon Prime it's four parts it's very good this again is one of those stories that I very much remember when it happened but I didn't know a ton about it and now Mm -hmm. that I know so much about it it's like Amanda Knox or any of those stories you're like the media chose an angle and went with it and it was not at all the right angle they done did her dirty. Mm, very. Bad. Very much Bad. so. Yeah. So um, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. 
and let's get into it. Lorena Bobbitt was born Lorena Gallo on October 30th, 1970 in Ecuador. At the age of seven, she moved with her family to Venezuela, where she was raised with a strict upbringing that included chaperone dates, no premarital sex, and a zero-tolerance policy regarding abortion or divorce, according to the American Law and Legal Information Library. Lorena recalls in the documentary, Lorena, that her mother and father were hard workers, but they didn't have a lot of money. Still, she says, We were poor, but we were happy. In Latin America, it is customary for girls to be thrown a quinceañera upon turning 15. The parties are notoriously lavish and celebrate the transition from childhood to becoming a young woman. Lorena's parents were not in a financial situation to throw a grand party, but Lorena was fine with that. What she really wanted was to travel, specifically to the United States. This is one of those where you don't even know the trajectory your life's fixing to take. Yeah, you're a 15, 16-year-old girl thinking, I'll go to the U.S., I'll go to school, I'll live the dream. You have no idea what you're, no. what you're about to embark upon. And that's something he preyed upon, too. Oh, definitely. Someone that was new to the country, didn't speak English, had very few friends or acquaintances. A sheltered, kind of a sheltered upbringing. Yeah, her family was hundreds of miles away. When Lorena was 16 years old, she visited the United States for the first time traveling to Washington, D.C. with her family. The vacation was magical, with the cherry blossoms in full bloom and a sense of excitement and longing unfamiliar to Lorena until now. Lorena recalled to the filmmakers that on the trip, she fell in love with the United States and decided that was where I wanted to be. Have you ever been when the cherry blossoms are blooming in Washington? I have not. The only time I've been was in January. It was for the Women's March after Trump was elected. Oh, very nice. And we went, though, to the monument and everything, and I bought a little souvenir planter of cherry blossoms, and they're currently still in my fridge. The seeds are being germinated. Well, that's really cool. They're probably... They're probably not good now. They've been in my fridge for too long. I don't I, know how I, plants I, work, I, I but fuck, maybe. I fucked up. <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I killed cherry blossoms. I would love to go. They're, I, I love cherry blossoms, and that's kind of a bucket list thing to see when they're in bloom. Have you been? It's, yeah, when I was in 10th grade, we did a high school field trip there, and it was in the spring, so it was when they were all blooming. Oh, it was so beautiful. It was such a nice trip. Yeah. So much fun. But that's awesome. They, they do a lot of establishing shots in the documentary, and I'm like, man, I want to go back to D.C. My eighth grade, that D.C. was also the class trip until the year I was in eighth grade and they changed it to San Antonio. Oh, man. I mean, there's nothing wrong with San Antonio, but you and your family could feasibly go there. Oh, wait. No, it wasn't San Antonio. I'm sorry. It was um, it was New Mexico. Again, but that's a driving distance. You know (laughs) what I mean? Like a family could theoretically go on a trip there. Yeah. There's nothing inherently wrong with New Mexico. Just kind of close. It was was nice. It was fine. We went tubing down the the white sands, the dunes and everything. And it was cool. But I was like, oh, D.C., that's like a adult trip. That's a big thing to go Mm -hmm. do. And then they done changed it on us. We went to D.C. and then we went to New York. No, we went to D.C., then Disney World, then New York. Oh, Disney World would have been awesome. They did the educational behind-the-scenes thing. So much fun. Ooh, that would be fun. We learned how to draw a Mickey. Anyway. Oh, nice. A few years later, in 1987, Lorena moved to the United States after being granted a student visa. The Gallows' close friends, the Castros, lived in Virginia, and it was decided Lorena would live with them while attending Northern Virginia Community College. At school, she studied English as a Second Language, or ESL, among other classes. 
When Lorena arrived in the U.S., she spoke no English at all. In addition to the ESL classes, Lorena learned the language and about American culture from daytime soap operas, game shows, and popular sitcoms of the time, like Family Ties and Growing Pains. Before long, Lorena had a clear vision of her American dream and soon met a man that she believed embodied it. It is so overwhelming to go to a country and not speak the language. That's I so can't brave. imagine. I can't imagine. It's so brave. Also, it I really think is. everyone should be bilingual in America. I would love to be. I've seen a lot of people have been doing Duolingo since yeah, they've I've got some mine. downtime. Okay. And I have the app and I don't do it. I need to do it. What language do, are you doing? Spanish? Spanish, yeah. I've Because I pretty much speak Spanish. So it's going into like phrases I don't know. I'm bad at like conjugating, but... I mean, when we were in Spain, I was like having conversations with the taxi driver and stuff. I just speak. It's like broken. I almost always say I sound like a kindergartner or like a little kid who is like, I want to go. I want to go to fair. You know, like you don't Mm. I don't have all the articles and stuff. Right. But it's been fun to practice. And um, I'll be I'll be like, sorry, uh, is it okay if I do my Spanish? Because you have to talk into it for Duolingo. And Paris is like, yeah, do whatever you want. So he'll be watching TV. and I'm like, yo, estoy, whatever. (laughs) Got to go in the other room. No, I'm just, no, hell no, it's my house. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> he should go in the other room. That's right. John Wayne Bobbitt describes himself as an ordinary guy from Niagara Falls, New York. He served in the military as a Marine. To make ends meet, John worked as a cab driver, a bar bouncer, and a construction worker, never bringing in much money. Growing up, John's father beat his mother repeatedly, to the point that his uncles would come over to retaliate beating John's father in return. After enough of those instances, his father left the family, leaving John's mother to take care of the children alone. The family was incredibly poor and lived in what John described as the ghetto. All right, John. Yeah. Again, coded language. We see it right off the bat. He's got a very interesting way of talking. Mm Mm-hmm. He's trash. He's completely complete trash. This is verbatim from his interview in the documentary. Watch it for yourself. Yeah, yeah. John claims he was repeatedly beat up, and his mother was raped by men that lived in the neighborhood. John told the makers of Lorena that he and his siblings were also sexually abused by a pedophile uncle who fed them alcohol and then molested them. These are terrible things. It uh, is. Again, like, um, he's an awful person, but it sucks that these things happened to him. It also probably led him into the life that he would later lead. Yeah, I think he doesn't say, oh, because X, Y happened, but he's internalized it. And regarding the uncle, he says, uh, you know, me and some of my siblings, he he kind of abused us. Anyway, we don't we, we don't really talk about it. You know, it's almost like their family wasn't they weren't taught to process the grief and the trauma. And then what happens is you continue the cycle. Right. Yeah, for sure. When Lorena first met John Bobbitt, she was working as a manicurist at the nail sculptor a salon owned by Jana Bassetti, a savvy businesswoman who would later become a confidant of Lorena's. Mrs. Castro, the family friend with whom Lorena was living, had two daughters, one younger and one older than Lorena. The sisters liked to party, despite their mother's extremely strict rules. Lorena would often go out with them, but remained quiet and reserved. One September evening in 1988, Lorena was out with the Castro sisters when the three women found themselves at a local club for men enlisted in the service. It was here that Lorena met John, or Lance Corporal John Wayne Bobbitt, as he was known at the time. John, 21, was serving in the U.S. Marines and was stationed in Quantico, Virginia. 
Lorena's long, dark hair and petite frame caught John's eye, with him recalling in a later interview. She was pretty. She had a cute accent. Which he would later use against her. (laughs) Which he would. And you see the pictures of him in his Marine uniform, and there's something about a dude in a uniform. He looks very clean cut. He looks reasonable. You look at him and say, that is, you know, if you're coming to the U.S. and thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, what does an all-American boy next door look like? And it would be him. He's got a little crew cut. He's, you know, clean shaven, got his little uniform on his dress blues or whatever. So you can see how if you put up a front, she would have no idea what she's getting into. Yeah. And she said as much. She said he was handsome. He had these gorgeous blue eyes that just drew her in and he embodied everything she thought she wanted. Mm -hmm. John asked Lorena to dance and then later for her phone number. Lorena thought he was handsome. and was immediately taken with him saying in later testimony that he represented everything to her. John was the first man Lorena had ever dated. Because of her parents' conservative beliefs, however, these dates would not just be the two of them. For 10 months, John and Lorena dated, doing wholesome things like going for pizza and ice cream, all the while with the chaperone in attendance. Usually the chaperones were the Castro sisters, Emily and Mercedes, who reportedly disliked John from the very first time they met him. Those feelings didn't change as they watched their friend and John become more serious. This makes me think of Seinfeld whenever Kramer is the chaperone for Jerry when he's dating the <laughs> Miss America lady. That's so great. And it's he like, takes it so seriously. And then right. he ends up getting with her. That's right. Because she appreciates. Is, is that the one where she had the birds and they yeah, leave them on the balcony? And, the and they dump the water and they drown the birds. So she yeah. can't do her magic act. She's got to sing and she's terrible at singing. Yeah, that was, but yeah, uh, I mean, that's great. When maybe... Because she was chaperoned on these dates, Lorena was chaperoned on these dates, he couldn't show his true colors. So, of course, he's acting on his best behavior because he's got two people looking at him, watching mm, him. mm -hmm. John drank heavily and would often forget his wallet on his dates with Lorena, meaning she usually ended up footing the bill. Lorena told the makers of the documentary, Lorena, that she now believes her friend saw something she was unable to at the time, as the giddiness of love was clouding her vision. Girl, if he ain't paying for the check, go. You need to run. And she's brand new to this country, making minimum wage as a manicurist. And this motherfucker's like, oh, I forgot my check. And the Castro sister said it would happen all the time. Like He needed a chain on his wallet with Jenko jeans. So he wouldn't forget <laughs> his wallet. When her wallet chains invented, he needed one. I don't one. think he was forgetting his wallet. No. I think he was intentionally no. leaving it home, which again just shows like... The lack of respect he had. Not that a man should always pay by any means. Switch off. Switch yeah, switch off. But also just like that he expected she was going to pay. I'm going to ask her on a date. We're going to go out and do stuff that costs money. And then at the end, oops, she's going to have to pay for it. Full well knowing that he didn't have his wallet the whole time. Absolutely, yeah. Just no regard. Yeah. The type of, uh, you know, it's kind of, it's just a scumbag move. Oh, he's, yeah. Scumbag is a nice word for him. Ten months after Lorena had begun dating John, he invited her to go swimming at the Olympic-sized pool located on the military base. As the two swam, John dipped below the water, swimming along the bottom of the pool. When he emerged, Lorena noticed he was holding something shiny between his fingers. John had found a woman's ring. It was gold and featured a small, delicate bow. Despite it clearly being someone else's ring that he simply happened upon, John used it to propose to Lorena right then and there, and she accepted. So you just found some garbage at the bottom of the pool. <laughs> you want to marry me? I guess. Yeah. 
some that maybe somebody was coming back to look for that i would yeah, they they went to the lost and found <laughs> they're like did anyone find this ring oh they found it and then they gave it away to their betrothed years later someone is watching this documentary and they're like that's my ring i've Son just been bitch. looking for that for 25 for years son of a bitch that's crazy yeah she said that she he was like well you want to get married and she said well only if you're serious and he's like yeah i'm serious i want to marry you and so it just happened right then and there again red flag number two he he found he proposing to you with found objects (laughs) i don't understand not not that i don't understand i it's another situation where what if there hadn't been a ring at the bottom of the pool Mm. Like when did they would admit would they have gotten married? What if he proposed in front of the Castros? Would they have been like say no? You know, but because they're alone, they're at the swimming pool. It just so happened. Good point. The Castros' aunt is in the documentary, and she says when she found out they were engaged, no, none of them could believe it. They were in Ugh. shock, but that her parents were reportedly happy because he was an American, and yeah. it was part of this whole dream. This American dream is to marry like the you know classic american guy which they thought he was like a boy next door i bet the mm-hmm. castros were shocked that he could afford a ring they're like he can afford a ring he never pays for dinner and she's like oh no he found it and they're like oh, okay that <laughs> no, makes sense he found it at the bottom of a pool oh great great yeah during an interview on the documentary lorena john recalls how his parents didn't want him to marry her but rather let her return to venezuela after her visa expired saying that if she came back it was truly meant to be John, however, felt otherwise, and on June 18, 1989, the couple were married in a small ceremony. That's also a very coded thing. Well, why don't you let her go back to her own country, and we'll see if, what if she comes back. Yeah, but you don't need to keep her here just so she can get a green card. That was very much their attitude. Don't let her visa expire. Go ahead and let her visa expire. Yeah. it's uh, uh, the You can sort of tell that he later on, at least, in, at towards the end of the documentary starts talking about women in general oh Mm. my please Mm. expert in women john wayne bobbitt (laughs) tell us what you think about women and he's like you know some of them are gold diggers and some of them are just trying to get their green cards i mean i'm just saying and you're like no you're you're a shithead yeah you can just tell you've uh, raped and beat multiple women so i don't Mm. think you're allowed to say anything about women yeah you're not an expert on Mm -mm. anything except being a douchebag yeah The newfound marital bliss between the couple would not last for long. John liked to drink. A lot. Perhaps this was the reason he was unable to keep a job, leaving Lorena to be the sole breadwinner for the family with the paycheck she received from the nail salon. Shortly after their nuptials, the couple had purchased a modest house. Because Lorena was unable to make the house payments by herself, on March 24, 1992, the bank foreclosed on their home. He was one of those where he didn't really ever get a reasonable job you know he was he was part-time at one thing would get fired would get kicked out part-time in something else wouldn't be able to keep up with it and so she was the only steady source of income and that's so demeaning for her to be like Mm -hmm. well now we have to get foreclosed because you don't make enough money it's like well there's a perfectly capable in theory other person in this relationship that's not contributing like he's just he was like lousing around wasting all their money on booze and by virtue of that it it then causes them to like go into this financial hole that she's basically forced to dig out and she can't i mean she's doing as best she can but i mean she's what are you gonna do when you have somebody like that drinking all your money away 
Yeah, he was just a mooch, and I don't think he really had any desire to find, like, a steady job. Mm -hmm. He was content with just drinking all day and letting her go to work and bring home the bacon. Mm -hmm. And he'd just fuck off with his friends. Mm -hmm. Desperate to keep their house and belongings, Lorena made the decision to steal $7,000 from her place of employment. She would also shoplift dresses from Nordstrom's in an attempt to please her husband and avoid his verbal abuse, saying in later testimony, I stole from Nordstrom because he didn't like my dresses and he always told me that I was ugly and I wanted to be pretty for him. Again, That's, that is heartbreaking. It's so sad. She, he just tore her down about everything, mind, body, and soul. I mean, he mocked her accent. He mocked her lang- like her speaking ability. He mocked her figure, her body. She weighed like 92 pounds. She was and a tiny, she was 5'2", 92 pounds. She was you, itty you bitty. breathe hard and she falls over. And he was just like, you're too big. You don't look ugly, everything. And so it drove her to these, to, you know, it's massive repeated amounts of abuse to a person who's already vulnerable. Yeah, she had... And she said she didn't, she wasn't telling anyone what was going on. She wasn't telling her family because she felt like this was her problem. And she was also embarrassed and she didn't want to worry her parents and everything. So she's taking all of this on herself in a brand new country where she, you know, she's not, she's now speaks English, but she, you know, there's still language barriers. It's still hard for her to like communicate with some people. And he, the one person that she thinks, loves her that she can trust and count on is treating her like garbage well and also just in general societal pressures are like a man is in charge this the 90s were the kind of starting to be this turning point but watching this documentary made me realize really how archaic some of the thoughts and beliefs were in the 90s and we'll get into you know in the next episode about like the marital uh, sexual assault and marital rape but how it was just unfathomable even there were not there was no federal funding there were no resources so you didn't now you know you see a tv show or you watch one of these documentaries and it'll say like here's the national domestic abuse hotline well they didn't have that back then it wasn't readily available resources where if your husband is demeaning you verbally that you, you know to label that oh i'm being verbally abused right you're like oh he's just mad today yeah i'll just this, have to get over it this is just how it is yeah That's there just was john mm-hmm. a month after their wedding lorena john and john's brother todd were driving home one night after spending the evening at a local bar according to lorena john was driving drunk speeding up to 90 miles per hour and dangerously zigzagging across the road Lorena, fearing for their safety, pleaded for her husband to stop. Instead of slowing down, however, John responded to his wife by punching her hard in the chest, while his brother Todd nodded in approval from the back seat. A couple of ways you can respond to your brother punching his wife in the chest. Nodding in approval? Not one of them. No, no. And no. She's, she says in the documentary, she's just sitting there sobbing confused and terrified and she just sees him nodding like yeah you did the right thing don't let her talk back to you you're the man in the house yeah get her yeah when they arrived back at their apartment jean grabbed lorena by the arm drug her upstairs and began to kick her once inside she wept while john admonished her for crying upon hearing the commotion neighbors called the police who arrived on the scene shortly while speaking with the documentary makers, Lorena recalled how shocked she was by her husband's complete transformation when answering the door for the cops. While just moments before he had been beating her and screaming at her, he now spoke to the police in a calm and collected manner. She said it was so confusing that it was like a totally different person answered the door. 
And that this is, is somebody, very common in abusers. Oh, absolutely. And I think that is somebody that he full knew, he fully knew what he was doing was wrong because when you're faced with the police, you deny sure. it and you say, everything's fine. It'd be one thing if he was so mad. It was like, yeah, slapped him right in the face. Okay, well, maybe he d- needs some coaching. But it's like, no, he knew what he was doing was fucking wrong, which is why he acted cool when the cops showed up. Mm-hmm. He also knew that he could do that kind of stuff in front of his brother. And that was totally cool they had the relationship where like this is how you treat women this mm-hmm. isn't this isn't weird i know that he's not gonna stand up to me or tell me this is wrong because he agrees with it and he thinks it's the right way to do it well i mean then that's the family that they came from that yeah. it was violence punished with violence you know when his dad beat the shit out of his mom her brothers came over and beat the shit out of the dad you know so it was just that's the response to everything mm-hmm. in that family Despite John being the abuser, the police asked Lorena if she had anywhere she could go in order to de-escalate the situation. At the time, Lorena didn't have anyone she could turn to for help. But not wanting to stay at her house for fear of what John would do next, she got in her car and drove to the nail salon where she worked. That night, Lorena slept in her car in the parking lot, a place far safer than her own bed at home. You get the shit kicked out of you and then you got to drive to work because you're so isolated from anybody else. That's and all she you, had. That's and you and, sleep in your car. Yeah. Her coworkers and then the Castro family were the only people she knew. Mm-hmm. And that's, you have to go and, and again, because there were not resources or at least they weren't advertised such that she knew about them of a domestic violence shelter or a resource right. center or something like that. So you're just left to injured and crying in your car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally alone. According to police reports, authorities were called to the Bobbitt's residence at least half a dozen times over the course of a few years. Friends reported seeing John aggressively grab Lorena by the arm, shove and push her into walls, and call her a bitch. Her boss and friend Jana said she would often see marks on Lorena's throat, rug burns on her arms, bruises on her back, and one time a bump on her head. At least once when police were called to the residence, John was arrested and charged with assault and battery after he bloodied Lorena's lip and left bruises and marks on her body. In addition to the physical abuse, Lorena was also being sexually assaulted and raped by her husband on a regular basis. This was not a uh, couple that you'll hear later. Some of the, the prosecutors like they weren't neither of them were angels. You know, they got into a couple of tiffs. She weighed 92 pounds. You know, yeah. if she was hollering at him. He weighed almost 200 pounds. A pretty solid muscle. I mean, throughout... He was twice, literally twice her size. Literally twice her size. Taller, um, a a head taller than her. And just yanked her around like a rag doll. The photographs of her abuse, and it was prolonged, and there Mm -hmm. were witnesses. This isn't like, well, and a couple times you'll hear them go, well, it was kind of a he said, she said. No, no. It was a she said, and there's photos. Like, this is provable, just prolonged, significant abuse. It's horrifying. Was maybe a footnote in any media mentions at the time yeah absolutely yes no the jokes and what happened to him trumped anything that had happened to her she was she was a nobody in these trials he got off honestly the penis cutting off which we're getting to spoiler alert he got off light for the years of oh yeah just damage that he did to this woman he was it, uh, it was tis but a scratch as the black knight would say mm-hmm. on monty python mm-hmm. it was you know it's it's just uh, appalling the more you read about what really went on in the in the years leading up to this i mean and they weren't married very long with four years mm-hmm. and it was constant yeah yeah constant 
it's nauseating. The her testimony in the documentary made me weep and physically ill. I was so nervous. I had like the sh- the shakes. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. very it makes you nervous. Inducing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On June twenty third, nineteen ninety three, John came home late, drunk as he was frequently. When Lorena rebuffed his sexual advances, John once again did something he had done multiple times before. He raped her. After years of dehumanizing treatment, Lorena felt it break loose. At 5.06 a.m., the Manassas City Police Department received a call that a male had been assaulted. According to the transcript of the 911 call as shown on the documentary Lorena, the call went as follows. Hello, this is Dispatch. Hi, uh, this guy walked into Prince William Hospital. He was, uh... He was assaulted by his wife. It, uh, it might, uh, I mean, you'll need to send somebody over there. Uh, has he lost part of his body? I don't know how much uh, damage uh, has been done. Uh, evidently, uh, quite a bit. Uh, apparently, the, the hospital needs it ASAP. It needs it to salvage this man's dignity. To salvage this man's dignity. Yeah. That's all, that's all anybody was caring about right they now. Were, I mean, it was, the crime scene investigator was a female, but from uh, otherwise, all the other officers and lieutenants that they interviewed, I believe, were males. I'm, correct me if I'm wrong. From the documentary, that's how it appears. That's what it appears. And they, it's one of those where we'd never heard of something like that. It was the worst thing we'd ever investigated. Really? Really? It was the worst thing? Honestly, the first probably 20 minutes of the first episode, I was appalled at the callousness or just kind of uh, flippant attitude in that all of the cops and, and former investigators had when talking about it they were laughing to like who was pretty wild <laughs> talking about I, I didn't want to touch it neither did he no, nobody wanted to touch it we just stood there and pointed to where it was it's like it was a, a lack of professionalism but then also all you guys know while this documentary is being filmed why she did all of this yeah. so why is anyone joking about anything or laughing like it's again it's like it just became this punchline that his dick got cut off instead of that he was anally raping his wife and beating the shit out of her for Weekly, years if not nightly yes. i mean it was bad significant and i'm like you watch that and you're like I know why you did it, girl. Good for you. Yes. And a lot of a lot of women at the time were coming out and saying that. And she said she would get letters that was like, you finally did what we've all wanted to do for so long. And again, like, but those were so few and far between of the media attention and the jokes and the negative attention she was getting from everyone. But imagine, too. I mean, and now I guess, you know, with time, it's been 25 years or whatever for those officers and, and kind of their uh, demeanor and attitude that's kind of laughing about it at the time. I imagine, I mean, aside from, you know, in the ER with him, people were like, <laughs> you know, it was oh, yeah, even back sure. then. And so she, you know, you're at there talking to police officers and they're kind of like not taking you seriously or are painting you as just like a crazy. She's crazy. Yeah, just Which, a psycho way, bitch. Ladies, if you're ever starting to date a guy and you're like, hey, whatever happened to your ex-girlfriend? And he's like, she's crazy. False. That guy's fucked up. He did something to her. <laughs> yeah. Again, that's, very, you, that's you coded to, language. It's coded language. You need to ask him, what'd you do to her? What yeah. did you do? Because mm-hmm. you know he did something. Yes. Well, in fact, John Bobbitt had lost part of his body. The it they referred to was the end of his penis. After years of emotional, physical, and sexual abuse... His wife, Lorena, had had enough. After her husband drunkenly raped her that night, like he had done so many times before, 
Lorena walked to the kitchen, grabbed a seven-inch long knife, went back to the bedroom, and sliced her husband's penis off. There's a lot of images of the uh, detached end, yep. as well as the stump that was left behind. There is. Very, very graphic. Haven't Lots. seen something that graphic since botched up bodies. <laughs> Lots of, and his was a botched up body. Oh, yes. Lots of images of the crime scene as well with mm-hmm. the, the bed where it happened. So, so much. But I will say, and I believe they said it um, in the documentary, that she made a very, uh, they said it was no hesitation. It was a very... One yep, fail No, she she went in and didn't hesitate, which nope. honestly, probably better for him. Yes. You don't <laughs> want a sawing situation. You yeah. Want yes. According to the dispatch operator, law enforcement officials were hesitant to include the detail about the penis on the actual call because the news media monitored the channels. The dispatcher and officers feared the news would hear and the story would spread like wildfire. At the time, because officers did not have cell phones... Everything they had to communicate was done over the police radios, channels that could be heard by third parties. Nevertheless, the search was on for the severed appendage as law enforcement rushed to find the penis and deliver it to the waiting doctors at the hospital. Cecil Dean, one of the crime scene technicians, told the makers of the documentary what he saw when he visited John at the hospital before he was treated. I saw a man's testicles or a scrotum without the penis. It it was cut very clean. It's well, like almost impressed. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I'm at a loss for words, honestly. I'm trying to imagine that whole hospital room scene. They showed the photos because he's laid back on a bed and they said when he came in, he had his hand in his crotch holding the. He piece was walking? Of- no, uh, yes. He walked up to the door and they put him in a wheelchair. And so he's mashing on his his lap with like a fabric. And of course, it's it's a lot of blood. I mean, he's yeah. bleeding a lot. And his friend is pushing him. And the doctor said, oh, my gosh, what did you do to your hand? Because she oh. assumed that he had cut his hand. And of course, you know, you lift it up and it's. Wow. Worst case scenario yeah. underneath that blanket. That's, not, or that's not what any of them thought they were going to see that night. No, no. But also, he was so drunk that he probably could walk. He was a bit numbed from the pain yeah, at the he, time. Yeah, yeah, I think that was part of it. And part of the blood loss, too. Yeah. One of the surgeons on call that night, Dr. David Berman, a microsurgeon, received a late-night call to perform an operation on John. Dr. Berman told the physicians who called him, If you can't find it, I can't put it back on. Dr. James Seen, the urologist who saw John in the ER, told filmmakers that John had lost about a third of his blood. Dr. Seen said that without the penis to reattach, they would have to do a procedure called a perineal urethrosity. The operation involves connecting his urethra so that John could, as Dr. Seen said, sit to pee like a woman the rest of his life. Can I just say super burn on him that you come in with an injury and they're like, we have to call the microsurgeon. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, well, uh, I'm going to make him sit to pee like a woman then. If you guys can't find this thing. Jokes on you. Also, not as I sit to pee like a woman every day. It's fine. It's fine. It's, it's great. You get it's, to relax. No muss, no fuss. Honestly, if I had to stand, it, sitting is a nice break in in the day where you can relax. You pull out down. your phone. <sighs> Give yeah. it a nice. Yeah. Just, just take a load off for a second. Put a load in. Maybe. <laughs> who knows? Yeah. Who knows what's going to happen? During John's interview for the documentary. 
He recalled that night in hazy details. I don't remember too much. I just remember her playing around with me while I was sleeping. According to archival interview footage, he remembered Lorena putting her arms around him. Then there was a small pull and a clean cut. He told the interviewer, It, it was horrifying. It was terrifying. I, I was confused. I thought Freddy Krueger's hand came through the wall. I, I was bleeding everywhere. All I could think was like, I should not go back to sleep. Luckily for John, his friend Robbie was staying with the Bobbits that night. John woke Robbie up for help. However, Robbie was confused and still sleepy and took time to stop and brush his teeth before driving John to the hospital. They were both wasted. I mean, he talks about... <laughs> totally. He wakes up in a pool of blood and is like, oh, man, I wonder what's going... Oh, my God, I'm bleeding a lot. Huh? Man, I shouldn't fall asleep. You know what I mean? It's like he was just so shit-faced. Yeah. And then his friend is so shit-faced that he doesn't even understand the severity of the situation and decides, you know what? I need to brush my teeth before... <laughs> also, he's shit-faced and driving. Oh, yeah. With his friend bleeding in the back seat, yeah. in the passenger seat. He did. Most of us, if we woke up and had a, an appendage missing, would just call 911. Immediately. Yes. Yeah. I, bro- I woke up with a broken ankle and not called 911, and they said, it will be $600 to drive you three blocks to the hospital. And I was like, I will take a cab. Thank you. Please oh, go. I woke, I woke up with a severely sprained ankle. And we say woke up like this happened to us while we were sleeping. Oh, no. I did I, a keg stand. <laughs> I uh, drunkenly fell off a porch and then uh, <laughs> went to sleep. And then the next morning woke up and was like, you know what? I think my ankle's broken. That's and, exactly uh, <laughs> I had to be taken to urgent care. <laughs> exactly what happened. I woke up and again, it was because I'd done, I was wearing espadrille sandals, like high wedges oh, yes, yes. with ankle straps. And not, I'd been not good drinking shoes. No, they're not good drinking shoes. And I was lifted to do a keg stand on a boat, on a moving boat. And then my feet were put down. And on the put down, I think I rolled my ankle or like <sighs> the, the ankle strap yeah. crunched me. So I had to put my foot in a, <laughs> I mean, I had like a cast on it, and but then I wrapped it in bubble wrap too. Why? Just because I was bumping it into stuff, and then I was having my uh, employees at Sea Dog push me around in a uh, rolly chair like an office chair. <laughs> did you have crutches? I had to have crutches. I did. I had crutches, but then I preferred the rolly chair. Oh, I was working at the airport at the time and had no one to roll me anywhere, and I had to walk. Or I had to crutch myself with these crutches all the way. It's at DFW Airport. It's the hugest airport. Yes. Parking, going through security still, and then going all the way down the terminal to get to where I was working. Where it did was you work the, at the airport? At a winery. That's so cool. I worked for a series of wineries, and one of them was there. But so sometimes I would have to go over there and do stuff. But it was you couldn't pick a worse place to work no. when you ha- when you have a broken ankle. <laughs> well, and that's why I worked at Navy Pier and our booth was about halfway down Navy Pier. And it's, I mean, it's so far. And so I would say, hey, I'm at the front at the bus stop. Come bring a rolly chair and roll me down. <laughs> and they roll you down? <laughs> yeah, it was very nice. I, w- I wish I had somebody to roll me down that terminal. That would have been great. <laughs> that would have been hilarious. <laughs> yeah, also, yeah. Well, soon crime scene technicians and police officers were swarming Maplewood Park Apartments on Maplewood Drive. One of those technicians, Cindy Leo, was initially told that Lorena had possibly swallowed the penis. However, that was not the case. In the Lorena documentary, Cindy walked the film crew through what she had found that fateful morning. On the outside of the unit, there were blood droplets coming down from apartment number five, down the stairs, and into the parking lot. Inside the apartment, there were blood droplets going through the living room and into a bedroom on the left-hand side of the unit, the scene of the crime. 
swallowed it? Yes, yeah, she for some reason that was uh, again, uh, it must be I don't know if it was like a joke on the radio. They're like, "Oh no, no, she probably ate it." And then it gets around like, "Well, she ate it. She ate the penis. We can't find it." Uh yeah, that was I for, just want to say do you, uh, <laughs> trying to like <laughs> how are you going to get that down? That's not that's not like taking a pill. That's like no. th- I mean, that's like swallowing a dick how are you gonna <laughs> cut i mean that is like that's so insane to me swallowing the you dick would- is like swallowing a dick <laughs> i will say at the um beetle house in los angeles they do the place that i went that's the tim burton themed restaurant they did a circus act in the middle of it and a woman instead of swallowing swords was swallowing the types of long balloons that you would normally use to do balloon animals she was mm. just like ah and i thought man your whole entire throat is plugged up although the wait she was the balloon she would actually swallow the balloons oh it went way down in there and then she'd pop it and pull the tube part out oh okay so it didn't like the the deflated balloon wasn't inside her body at the end of it she pulled it out at the end the deflated damn yeah it seems you know some pieces are getting off in her oh for sure you're gonna dump it out and look down there's blue latex everywhere i i don't understand how people can do that i have such a gag reflex yeah it's it was impressive, frankly. I mean, I put money in the tip bucket. I was like, well, I can't do that. <laughs> no, I Yet. mean, that is, yeah, she's got a talent. Few of us yeah. do. <laughs> you know what? You, if you got a talent, you got to show it off. But uh, I think that would be the ultimate revenge if she would have swallowed it because the stomach acid would have eaten it up. Mm, and then, I mean, but then there's you, raw you meat. You're not wait to three days for her to shit it out and then reattach a shit penis. Well, I don't think you can reattach that. I think no. it'd be all mashed up. It's got, it's, it's gone. It's, you're I not, mean, it's. It's it's uh, meat. It's hard enough for me to swallow a vitamin hole. You know, she oh, got to chew it up. Yeah. I can't do vitamins like that. Those big horse vitamins. Oh, big old chunkos. No. They're bad. Officer John Tillman arrived on scene and was forced to balance the time-sensitive search for the penis with wanting to maintain the crime scene. He noticed that the bed had a blood stain on it, about an inch deep full of blood. According to reports, John was extremely intoxicated, which led him to laying on the bed for some time after the member was cut off. Officers didn't find the penis in the house after searching the sink, the garbage disposal, the freezer and the trash can. Yeah, that's where they went first. They were searching the kitchen to try to see where she would have disposed of it. Hypothetically, <laughs> you you cut off a dick. Yes. What room in the house are you going to to, to dispose of this? Are you going the, to the kitchen? No, I would flush it down the toilet. I was thinking flush it down the toilet, too. Like a tampon. Well, that's a hell of a tampon. Yeah, it'd be a big one. <laughs> I Also, on the documentary, one of the investigators says he opened up the dishwasher to look in there. Do you think she cleaned it off? Do you think she <laughs> wanted to... Run it through the dishwasher. She was like, I washed your dirty dick for you. Open the dishwasher. The garbage disposal, while stomach churning is also not a bad idea that's a pretty good idea if you're trying to get rid of it and if you're trying to be mean about it and really chomp it up so you you can never put it back yeah well flushing it too they're not going to get that back true i guess unless you get the roto rooter man out honestly he got as we'll see the best possible solution to this whole thing because most women would not have just (laughs) given it back or told them where it was and uh we can get in part two my theories on the defense think this is uh goes to speaks to state of mind Mm. well however officers did find pamphlets regarding rape spousal protection and domestic violence sitting on a nearby coffee table 
Later that morning, Lorena went to the police station and reported the sexual abuse and domestic violence that she had suffered for years, including the spousal rape to which she had been repeatedly subjected. The officer on duty let her know that while they would take her statement, that other officers were still searching for the penis and a lieutenant on duty would be coming by to question her. Yeah, it was kind of, I mean, I guess it's hard for this local police department and then you'll see the prosecutor's office because they're kind of on two cases at the same time. And there's victims and perpetrators in both scenarios and they have they have what here is a rape victim. I mean, they have a rape victim here that they're also treating as a perp. Yeah. Yes. It's quite a conundrum. Lorena told officers that she remembered having her hands full while trying to drive and tossing something out of the window. When Amy Chozik of the New York Times asked Lorena why she threw the appendage away, Lorena replied, I tried to drive the car, obviously, but I had this thing in my hand, so I couldn't drive, so I got rid of it. Sounds logical. I mean, it makes sense. (laughs) If you have a knife in one hand and a stump of penis end in the other hand, I mean, you're going with your knees at that point. I'd like me driving down the road eating a taco. I got to, you also got to put the knife down. I think both those things seem to be be disposed of. I guess you could put it in the the passenger seat, but the penis may leave a stain depending if it's leather Mm, interior or fabric. But again, I don't think she was even in her right state of mind to know what was going on. So she was just, just almost like blackout. That's what I'm saying. I think if it was premeditated and okay, I'm gonna. She would have ground it up in the, mm-hmm. you know, in the disposal or flushed it or smashed or it or buried whatever. it or something. or something. Yeah, it was very like not even thinking, totally out of her head, just kind of oh, fuck it. Yeah, just throw it out the yeah. window. Yeah. The officer asked Lorena where she threw it. She told the New York Times, "I'm not a vindictive person because I told them where it was." Officers searched the area that Lorena had directed them to, and there they found it. In the knee-high grass, John Wayne Bobbitt's detached penis. They rushed to the 7-Eleven right across the street, put it in a big bite hot dog box on some ice, and took it to the hospital, according to the New York Times. Guess what I saw walking my dogs today? A big bite hot dog box? Yes. (laughs) I started laughing, and I was like, I got to take a photo of this. (laughs) Was there a dick inside? From what I could see, there was not. But it was, you know, if someone were to toss a dick into this grass, there's a hot dog box right there. It's very convenient. Also, she honestly is not, her statement of, I'm not vindictive, I told them where it was, is very true. Because most women would be like, I don't know. I don't know where I threw it. Good Mm -hmm. luck, fine. And then that's a needle in a haystack. That's a dick in a dick in Manassas. That should be the new needle in a haystack. It's a dick, never, it's a dick in knee high grass. You are never going to find it. <laughs> You're never going to find it. They wouldn't begin to know where to look. So it would Mm-mm. just, and then some possum stumbles upon it. No, no, no. Yeah. And so she didn't have to do that. No. And I mean, she was very nice to have done that. And also, back then, you know, there's not, like, cell phones, so they couldn't say, okay, well, we pinged your phone, and we know you drove here, here, and here. And plus, she said, I kind of don't really know where I was driving to. Yeah, she was just mindlessly driving. The lieutenant on duty asked Lorena what happened. Amongst her statements to police, she complained that John did not satisfy her sexually, saying, He always have orgasm, and he doesn't wait for me to have orgasm. He's selfish. I don't think it's fair. So I pulled back the sheets, and then I did it. And that statement kind of comes back to bite her later. Yes, but, it's used against her repeatedly. Yeah, And, you know, 
she shortly after reported all the rape and abuse that she was suffering. I think she was not even thinking and was just saying anything that came to mind. She made also before she goes to speak to her boss, she might not have wanted to disclose any of what was going on because again, she was embarrassed. This is a, a shameful thing that was happening to her and to so many women. And you have this male officer questioning you about why you did this and what do you say? Well, and I also wonder if she was not equipped for the term I was raped. You know, it wasn't even on the stand. She never says rare. I I have to go back and watch it. Of course, I'm only watching the parts that are in the Lorena documentary. But she would say, oh, he comes in and has sex with me. Or she would say he he did it. He he did did it. it. And then he did it. You know what I mean? So this could be a a situation where they're like, what exactly happened? She's like, well, you know, he holds me down and he has orgasm, but I don't because I'm not enjoying it. And this is kind of what happened. They, you know, the media sort of took this. And then, of course, the prosecution for what I got a lot of takes on the prosecutor, good and bad. But this line of testimony was then used to almost say, oh, well, she was just a woman scorned. She was so mad. And you never stop to think this could be a person who is not linguistically equipped with the the jargon to say I was raped and all you know how to do is say well he holds you know he comes in he has sex with me he has an orgasm I don't have one and so I, I had to fight back you know and she doesn't have the maybe not the the exact word for it there's a language barrier yeah also she she probably I'm sure she knows what rape is but to her this is her husband and again mm-hmm. because of the times like some states didn't even recognize marital rape it mm-hmm. was if that's your wife, then it's not rape. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she's not from here. There's already a language barrier. And then she's like, well, it couldn't be rape because I'm married to him. Well, so if you, how do you describe that? You know, and she has a religious background where you think, OK, the female submissive, the male is dominant. If he wants I'm his property, I'm his wife, yeah. you know, because there's a lot of that kind of language in religious scripture that, you know, she may think, OK, well, I, ha- I-, I have to go with it. Yeah. And they're also after their house went into foreclosure they split up for a while for about a year mm-hmm. and then they ended up getting back together and throughout that time they were still like obviously arguing everything and john claims that he said i'm leaving you this is it we're that's done right. I'm, I'm getting a divorce and that that's why she she did all of this but i don't buy that i mean i don't buy anything that sack of shit says he has repeatedly raped, uh, repeatedly raped people and lied about it. And every single thing that he has done, he has found a way to explain it that it wasn't his fault. Yeah, but he beats the shit out of this woman, leaves all these bruises, and goes, "Oh my god, well she was fighting me, and so I had to fight back." Bullshit. Yeah, you as a two hundred pound, six foot two man had to fight back against this. N- she's the size of like a child. A- a fifth grader. Yeah. Yes, she's yes. she's so small. As my Uncle Jerry would say, don't piss on my leg and tell me it's raining. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't say, oh, yeah. my God, I just had to. Bull. No. Uh-uh. uh-uh. And it seems like that was kind of the whole family's mentality because he would say well it's just like my mama said that if if she couldn't have me nobody could and you know i didn't think about it at the time but then people reminded me like well she's just in it for the green card because she didn't want to go back and so all these people in his life were just feeding him this information Mm -hmm. like so he's being told from every angle like you didn't do anything wrong you couldn't do anything wrong you're completely blameless in this and his 
brother who has seen him beat the shit out of her and was clapping his hands about it like of course no one's gonna say anything wrong was going on absolutely yeah this is this is a person that has no personal responsibility for no. as we will see too in the next episode for any of the bullshit he's done beyond this too right yeah she told officers after she threw the organ out the window she then went to her work and nobody was there after leaving the store she went to see her friend and boss Jana. Lorena stood outside, knocking and crying, until Jana's husband finally came to the door. In an archival interview with Jana, she explained how Lorena told her that she had, in fact, cut John's penis off. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't deny it at all. No. Yeah. She, she, she was did. very um, complicit with the police and and agreeable and, and helpful, even. Mm-hmm, yeah, she, think- yeah. She went... She went to the bathroom after he raped her and fell asleep to get her to the kitchen to get a cup of water, saw this knife and just mentally snapped. Uh-huh. I think it so. wasn't it wasn't premeditated or anything like that. And so then, like you said, all of this afterwards shows it wasn't premeditated. If no. it wasn't pre- if you're not going to agree to tell the police where it is, you're not going to just randomly drive around and and go tell people. You'd have a plan of how to make sure that you didn't get caught and get out of it. I think yeah, mm-hmm. it was like a shining beacon on the kitchen counter of her like, "Oh, that will solve all of my problems." Yeah. Also, she could have just stabbed him in the heart. Yeah, she could have slit his throat. <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, you see this penis as a symbol of fear of the the thing that damages you and Mm -hmm. attacks you all the time. And you're like, well, it's just laying there. Yeah. Yeah. The knife and the penis. Lorena also let officers know that she left the knife at her job, the nail sculptor, in a garbage can behind the building. CSI Cindy Leo had to race against time to get to the can before the city garbage collectors, who were poised to empty out the can as it was trash day. Photos show the knife exactly where Lorena had left it, in the garbage can, lying on top of a discarded KFC box. It's just one of those things where it's just such an agent of destruction and it's lying limply in a garbage pile. Covered in blood. Oh, yeah. Atop atop a bunch of delicious KFC greasy chicken boxes. And uh, Cindy Leo says that she's climbing in the garbage and then someone sees her and she climbs out and she's got this knife in her hand. They're like, you get what you needed? She's like, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. Yeah. What a job. I know, man. John Wayne Bobbitt underwent a nine and a half hour surgery under the steady hands of a urologist and a plastic surgeon to reattach his organ. The big question was, would it still work? According to the New York Times, the member was reattached with almost full function. For two months after the surgery, John was fitted with a catheter, as that was the only way he could urinate until his penis had finally healed. Everybody was sort of... Uh, seedily wondering you know that's it, it is the question on people's minds 100 percent. and even jordan peels the executive producer of this documentary and i read this article that when he first decided to make it he even approached lorena and was like you know there was then and there is now this like kind of comedy thing surrounding it this dark comedy it's like a coen brothers film almost like are you going to be okay with like some of that coming out in this documentary? Because the reality is a bunch of cops are running around looking for a severed dick. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, like there is this sense of just absurd and it's just incredulous. But then when you peel back, like the first reaction of, Oh my God, his dick got cut off and start to think, why, 
what was going on with her. It mm-hmm. nothing funny about it at that point. No, 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 no. And especially a lot of the depictions of her where the accents are just uh, beyond it's it's caricature. Yeah, yeah, it's just yeah. Yeah, she was labeled a crazy, psychotic bitch, a hot Latin immigrant. Again, all these coded words like hot, hot Latino, hot Latina woman and everything. Hot blooded. Yeah. Yeah. She just was like this woman scorned. And like she says, like, nobody cared why I did it. They just cared that it happened because it was this dark taboo thing that was unthinkable. Like she took his manhood, the thing that men care most about. On Jenny Jones, they show in the documentary, John and his brother are both on it. And she's like, so you, John, or uh, Todd, you went out looking for Lorena after she did it, right? He's like, yeah, I was going to kill the bitch. And um, men in the audience start applauding. Fuck you. (laughs) It's crazy. And he's like. He's like, she took the one thing that makes a man a man, the the one thing that we care most about, our 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 manlyhood. I'm like, first of all, if the thing you care most about is your dick, you're not a man at all. You're no. just a sack of shit. There's a lot and stop being this man woman thing. Be people. Yeah. Like, you're a human e- being who hurt yes. another human being, who backed another human being into a corner so that they thought this was their only way out. Yes. You know, and where again, you tell them, you'll never escape me. I'll fuck you wherever I want to, whenever I want to. Yeah. And you think, okay, well, what's he going to do that with? Oh, his dick? Well, not anymore. Yeah. And again, had this been reversed and he cut off her her clit or a breast or anything, it no one would be making these jokes. No, it would not have been a hilarious headline. I don't think, he, you know, she would have been called on Howard Stern to chat about what had happened. First of all, and we'll get to it in the second episode, I'm ashamed of myself for how much I used to like Howard Stern in high school. 100%. Because he, he is the a disgusting sack of shit and i'll go on record saying that oh, especially I, after the shit he does he says about her and the stuff he does with john wayne bobbitt he's horrible he's a horrible man watching that documentary and the footage it's one of those where you know it's not that someone has framed his participation in this whole thing incorrectly or unfairly it is video and audio footage of him saying some of the worst most sexist bullshit and honestly i don't think it was a bit i don't think it was an act and i agree i feel like an asshole because when i was in high school i would watch the video version of it on e yeah same i listened to his radio show every morning with my best friend on the way to school yeah oh i loved it back then and you listen to it now and you go oh you're deranged like Mm -hmm. if he were someone that was performing and and i don't have sirius xm or whatever and i'll listen you know i don't listen to that but who knows he may still be as shitty as he was back then but it's one of those i think if someone came out now and said oh i'm sure you didn't rape her because she's too ugly which yeah. is something that he says. Yeah, quote, quote. Almost verbatim. I believe I don't he think, says, I, I don't, don't think, think she was that good looking. Yeah, I don't even think he raped her. She wasn't even that good That good looking. Yes. Yeah. And so things like that. And you, you're like, that's some shit. I don't even know that Rush Limbaugh would say something like right. that. It's, you know what I mean? It's just like beyond what is acceptable. And I think a lot of times when you hear 
particularly cisgender, heterosexual, white male comics say, well, you know, we used to be able to say whatever we wanted. You're like, yeah, whatever you wanted was garbage and you can't say that. <laughs> yeah. anymore. Or, or by, by all means, say that and then we'll know you're a dickhead and we won't have to talk to yeah. you anymore. You can still say whatever you want. Just luckily, there's a lot of repercussions now if you do. Yes. I was like, there's, there's such a thing as freedom of speech, but there's not no such thing as freedom from consequences. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I, I totally agree. The 90s were wild, man. Dude. I mean, that's that's when I was in high school. I graduated in 97. So, like, you know, I was in high school when, and I mean, I love Seinfeld and mm-hmm. I love Friends and everything. But sometimes when you watch some uh, even episodes of, like, sitcoms back, you're like, good God. Some of Friends is does not hold up. Oh, no, it does not. It, it, there is a lot of yikes. Uh, yikes moments in there for sure. Yeah. That you watch- I was watching, I mean, even in Seinfeld, there's some racial stuff that I'm like, what the fuck is happening? Like, this wouldn't be on the TV now. And I think at least Seinfeld is similar to, like, Always Sunny, where the characters doing stuff, they are abhorrent. And so it makes sense that they would say abhorrent things. But friends, they're all kind of, like, supposed to be, like, nice, sunny people. Yeah. And they say yeah. some pretty... <laughs> I yeah. mean, uh, There's some stuff. It was on a random tangent. tangent back, back in the 90s, I loved Real World and Road Rules. Oh, hell and yeah. And the Real World Road Rules Challenge. And I just watched totally. some stand-up from Theo Vaughn, who was on Real World Road Rules Challenge. He's a very funny stand-up. Which one was Theo? Theo, he's from Louisiana. and he has. Uh, yes, of, I remember. He, he looks like he could be Bill Paxton's son. Yeah, yes. Yeah. He, was he Theo? He kind of have like a gap in his teeth. Yes, yeah. He looks like Bill yeah, Paxton's yeah, yeah. Kid. I know, I know exactly who you're talking about. I he was a, a good one. A section on his, uh, uh, it's Roy Wood Jr.'s show on Comedy Central, and he did about a 20 minute set. It was very funny. I'm like, hey, good for you. I also saw The Miz. Perform. Oh, that's where he got that character. That's was right. From Road and The Rolls. Miz mm-hmm. it, again. It's one of those where you go, hey, good for you. You got to be what you wanted to be when you grew yeah, up. Yeah, he did. And he's an actual a really nice guy. From I mean, from all that I know yes. and everything. But yeah, he was, he did, that was the character he would do when oh, he would Miz. get drunk. Um, yes. The Miz would come out. <laughs> but he also had always said on the show, like, my that dream was- is to be a professional wrestler. I love and it. And then they, WWE contacted him and he is, he's a star. Stay insanely su- successful. Yeah. He is a superstar. I wonder yeah, what ever happened to that one guy in real world. I think he was on the New Orleans cast and he played the keyboard and he was like, Shabadoon, Dabadee, Babu, Dabu, You remember that guy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I loved real. I auditioned for that. Did I sent really? an audition tape. Yeah, I was, it was, I was so lame. No, so I was lame. So sad. I couldn't be on it, but I could. Maybe now. Why couldn't you be on it? Because I was your age. I was in, yeah, uh, I was in like maybe nine. I'm or so glad grade. I wasn't on it. That's true. Jesus Christ! I Live never wanted world. camera crew following me around, especially at 22 years old. Ooh, yeah, no, that's thank true. Thank you. Full regret. <laughs> I, uh, I, I've, I think I've seen every real world. Maybe like. I don't know if they still do it. I don't think they do. Hot Maybe opinion. the last couple seasons I didn't see, but I loved Road Rules and the challenges. I've always liked reality TV. Yeah, I liked, I remember back then, I liked the real, I especially liked the Road Rules challenges, but just real world is like the rural juror. It's hard to say. Real world, yeah. Real world. Real, real you just world. Just kind of go, blah, blah, But yeah. the 90s were a different time. And uh, you'll, if you go and watch this Lorena documentary, uh, you might vomit when you see some of the clips. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, the first about 30 minutes of the first one is just a lot of clips of daytime talk shows where you're like, how was this allowed on the air? It is uh, shocking, frankly. It is. But, and it Josh, is. Joshua Rafe, I don't know how to say his name, Roth, 
the one that was the director of this, he basically says on a Vanity Fair interview, uh, if Howard Stern doesn't come out and apologize after this, he's bigger. He's a bigger douchebag than any of us ever thought. And I think it's been about a year and I don't think he said anything that I could no. find. I, I bet he, he's dug in. Yeah, he don't give a shit. Well, with arrests made and charges filed against both the Bobbits, multiple trials loomed ahead. First up would be John's on the charge of marital sexual assault. A few weeks later, Lorena's would take place, where she would stand trial for malicious wounding of her husband. Journalists, comedians, and even locals of Manassas were having a field day with the headlines and profiting off cheap jokes and trashy merchandise. But the media circus surrounding this story was only just beginning. Yeah, God, those T-shirts. My God. And in the in the archival footage of the locals selling those T-shirts, just laughing about it like, well, we thought we just it, this is exciting. This is the biggest thing this town's seen since the Civil War. So we're going to go down there and <laughs> sell these sell these T-shirts that say like Manassas, a cut above the rest. Yeah, and, and there's a knife like, with blood on yeah. it. Yeah. And it's like, can you imagine going to the courthouse every day and you see people, vendors, like it's the fair, yes. set up, selling t-shirts, selling sausages on a stick and, you oh. know, all this just like disgusting stuff. And you're like, well, we're here because he was raping me and beating the shit out of me for years. But cool, if you guys want to make a couple bucks off this hilarious t shirt. Yeah, go right ahead. God. It's I can't imagine what this poor woman was going through. And at no point that I've seen in the documentary, and this is not to say fault her parents, but like she didn't have family there. Yeah, it took a while for them to come up to be with her just because of finances. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, her boss was there. Jana was kind of her confidant and one that kind of guided her, like, you need to get a lawyer. You need to get someone to handle all the media requests you're getting so you, they can't just, like, run things that you say and, and all the news headlines whenever they want to and everything. So she kind of, like, guided her. And that was really all she had. And it, her lawyers. And it did. It took a while. But then there was a community organizer in the Latino community that brought together Basically, people from Mexico, Central America, South America, basically the Spanish speaking community came out holding signs, holding up pictures of Jesus and stuff and saying, we support you. We're here for you because oh, good. they kind of understood that this was a person who was scared of her immigration status, yeah. not able to maybe fully verbalize what was happening to her and needed that community of support. And they would stand outside. It, like I said, of course, it took a while and it was by the time of the trial, but kind of stand outside and hold up signs. And she said, you know, that meant the world to me just to see him on that day that they finally came yeah. out. But it was that she knew she had people on her in her corner. Somebody that wasn't just making fun of you on late night TV. Yeah. yeah. Well, so what do we think well, about what's happened so far? I think the media uh, maybe didn't give us the full story. Yeah, I, I certainly don't think so. This is, of all the the stories we've done, this is one of the most shocking as far as just how much the media left out about what was really going on. Completely biased, unfair, salacious mishandling of the story yeah in oj it was fairly well known that nicole was being beat and everything yes that was it, like you'll hear from time and time again in the documentary um feminist groups and and even lawyers and everything saying 
no one really talked about the fact that she was getting raped and beat. It, that was like just like you said, a footnote mm-hmm. in all of these things. Like David Letterman did a top 10 of like why she did it, you know, and would call her his girlfriend. And yeah, it was just did not age well. No, no, yeah. it does just not. And I hope that all of those comedians see this because this came out in just last year mm-hmm. and, and, um, and say, see like, Man, I need to personally apologize to her. Yeah, I fucked up. I didn't know what I was doing. And honestly, too, like, um, the editors of the time were predominantly male and basically said, Mm -hmm. we are not interested in that angle. That's not the interesting angle. And Joshua Rafi, or I'll figure out how to say his name, apologize. It's R-O-F-E with an accent over it. He got the idea for this documentary from reading the Huffington Post article, which we'll put in the show notes, that it, the headline is basically, after 25 years, Lorena Bobbitt's tired of being your uh, punchline. And mm-hmm. he said he read that and was appalled at the handling of this case and basically called her up and said, hey, I want to tell the story focusing on the right thing, which is exactly what you said. People always said what I did. Nobody asked me why I did it. And he's yeah. like, I want to focus on why you did it. And the, the, movie, or the, the movie, the documentary also goes into the legal uh, climate at the time and the changing of the marital rape laws. They're also in the process of uh, Orrin Hatch and Joe Biden were co-sponsoring the Violence Against Women Act, which recently uh, is no longer in effect and unfortunately uh, has lost some funding. So we'll go into that in the next episode. But important changes. This was also during the time of Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas. Yes. Um, And then it happened not too long, not not too much before the OJ case. Yes. Tanya Harding happened right around this time, too. And that's what they said. A lot of much, crazy trials in the 90s. And that Tanya Harding pretty much knocked this from the headlines. Yeah, this is was, why people stopped talking about this because the Tanya Harding thing started mm-hmm. to happen. I will tell you one thing I found on Amazon Prime that was uh, so bad that Paris was like, you have to turn this off. It was Julie Brown, the comedian... Doing a two, it's an hour and a half long movie, and it's two 45-minute halves, and one half is her being Tanya Harding, and I guess doing a parody reenactment, and the second half is her dressed as Lorena Bobbitt, doing a very offensive Latina accent, and making just dick. Is there there an audience? It's a movie, so it's like a parody film. So she, there's other people in this. Uh, correct. Yes, yes. It's not like a one woman show. It's, oh, it was rough. It was very. It's called Attack of the Five Foot Two Women. Um, it and is, was it pro them or just? It um, sounds like it was very. The, des- uh, the description is spoofmeister Julie Brown does a oh musical send up of Tanya Harding and Lorena oh, a musical oh yes and Lorena Bobbitt's debutante debacles the cover has her dressed as both characters and the Lorena Bobbitt says slice she went for the jewels and then the Tanya Harding says whack she went for the gold it's every time I see something like that I just ask myself how did this get greenlit? Yeah, it's National Lampoon's Attack of the Five Foot Two Women uh, premiered Sunday, August 21st on Showtime. So it was like a Showtime made for TV parody wow. film. Well, she she needs to also send a formal apology. Oh, yeah. It's available on Amazon Prime. And I could uh, the review on uh, IMDb is seriously now. 
<laughs> it's embarrassingly badly made. But yeah, it's one of those where at the time someone spent time, money, effort in in mocking a, in a, a rape victim and abuse yeah. victim's yeah. pain. Well, we will get into the trials. There are several of them and even more details of all of the abuse that she endured in the next episode. And, and then what and happened after the um, the uh, Illust- career path that John decided to take Illustrious for a while. career, yeah. Good and Lord. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think she's ended up with a pretty happy you know, happily ever after, but man, it was a bumpy road to get there, and for the, sure, especially the trial and stuff. So we'll we'll look forward to bringing you that next week. Absolutely. We love providing Sinisterhood to you at no cost. So if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We are a small operation, creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Ruling the Airwaves tier, a special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode, and patron-exclusive audio and video content, like our weekly mix bags where we share three of our favorite things of the week. For more details on specific membership tiers, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on Patreon in the top right corner to join today. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. If you want to get some cool Sinisterhood swag like t-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on Shop in the top right corner. We also have a brand new shirt up, which it, we are very excited about. New shirt dropping. It's a Donna Laser and the Meat Warlocks World Tour shirt. Yes. If you've listened to episode 83, Pazuzo Algarod and the Meat Warlock, you will understand the reference. If you haven't, go listen to it because it's one of our favorite ones we've ever done. And we laugh a whole lot. <laughs> so good. And so good. Uh, the shirt is designed by the amazing Jude Sutton. You can follow him on Instagram at day off. It's D-A-Y-Y-Y-O-F-F-F. He is a really rad artist. He has a store, tons of cool stuff. He's way hipper than I am. He's a, one of the coolest people I follow on Instagram. <laughs> he's, su- and I, he's super cool. I uh, freaking love his page. I, every yes. time I go on there, pretty much everything, actually everything he posts, I love and relate to. Um, it's great. And also for the month of April, 100% of profits from any merch sales will go to the World Health Organization COVID-19 Solidarity Response Fund. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much to us and really helps small podcasts like us get more exposure. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. Christy, where are you at? I'm on Twitter at Christy or GTFO and on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace. Heather? I'm on Instagram at Heather versus the world and on Twitter at MCK versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Thanks so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shoutouts. Whitney Davis. We're so sorry we pronounced your name wrong last week. Leah Cook. Roxy Silver. Alexandra Gibson. Rachel Kanzierski. Arissa Reyes. Joanna Marsh. Hope Bell. Danielle Vellet. Kayla. Elise Compton. Megan Pulliam. Christina Green. Rachel Carroll. Adele Holliday. Melinda Christine McKinley. 
Brianna Cheka, Caitlin Boinger, Morgan Gillenwater, Scarlett Black, Jazz, Sierra Zagari, Jenna Blackburn Lucy, James Adazinski, Kayla Cummings, Leah McComb, Ryan Price, Stephanie Pahari, Whitney Goddard, Hannah Smith, Emily Catlett, Emily, Good Witch Knits, Allison McCartney, and Ruby Carrasco. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show. We could not do this without you. We love you and appreciate everything you do. Keep it creepy. Wahaha. Sinister. Hood.